Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and I'd like to welcome my guest, Dr. Phil Faraci, Medical Director of the Condell Heart Center and Chief Cardiac Surgeon, and we will be discussing life-threatening heart diseases. Welcome, Dr. Faraci. It's very nice to be here, and I appreciate this opportunity to meet with you and discuss these diseases which are in our minds and hearts daily. Let's start with one of the most common diseases, that being coronary artery disease. What exactly causes this disease? Well, Mark, as you know, and all physicians know, coronary artery disease is one of the manifestations of arteriosclerosis, which is a disease of metabolism that affects all of the arteries everywhere in the body and manifests as many serious illnesses, stroke, for instance, aortic aneurysms, and most importantly, the largest public health hazard in the Western culture, coronary artery disease. Well, how do we detect coronary artery disease? There are a number of markers which constitute risk factors for coronary artery disease, which are well known by all physicians, and all primary care doctors are very careful to screen their patients for these risk factors. What are they? Well, they include a family history of coronary artery disease, perhaps a myocardial infarction in a family member, usually a mother, father, or sibling. This is the most important marker, and we'll get to that in just a few moments. But there are others, including hypertension, diabetes, obesity, smoking, hyperlipidemia, and these are factors that can be controlled. As you know, the family history really can't be controlled very well, and yet it becomes, in our current understanding of this process, the most important factor because, in fact, this is a familial disease based in our genetic makeup. And we're hoping that in the very near future, with the study of the genome, we will be able to discover the mosaic of genetic factors which actually constitute the etiology of this disease and will make it finally treatable. And what specific tests do you do to determine if someone has significant coronary artery disease? Well, of course... Chemical tests have been very popular in the past and still are, and that includes measurement of lipoproteins in the circulating blood. Cholesterol is the most popular of those, of course, but there are others, triglycerides, and some others that are less well-known. We may also measure factors which contribute to or signs of acute inflammatory reactions like C-reactive protein and other chemistries. But when these risk factors are found to be positive to a high degree, it is recommended that a more specific test be done. Such as? Well, the most common of those today would be an exercise stress test. And this is done by running on a treadmill and watching the electrocardiogram. The stress test can then be enhanced by a nuclear imaging, which demonstrates how the blood flows through the myocardium during and immediately after a stressful exercise program. And what about CAT scans? Well, that's a good question, Mark, because this is going to be the most exciting development in the near future in the diagnostic armamentarium for screening people for coronary artery disease. People who have any number of risk factors will soon be sent to a CT scanner, which acquires data much more quickly than the current scanners. And what about angiogram? Well, angiography has been the gold standard of diagnosis for determining the anatomic characteristics of coronary artery disease. We're interested in knowing where there are major obstructions to blood flow and how we may be able to treat them. Now, I mentioned the rapid CT scanner. With the 64 scanner, we'll be able to create a three-dimensional image of the coronary tree, 
without having to do angiography. And the consequences of severe coronary artery disease? Well, clinically, coronary artery disease may be silent for many, many years and only detectable by the manifestations of the exercise stress test and so forth. However, the first symptoms of the disease may be angina pectoris, which is frequently thought of as a pain, but it's really a pressure sensation like a band across the front of the chest, or it may be in the jaw, or it may be in the upper abdomen, and it is usually related to exercise or some activity. Subsequently, angina may progress to actual injury of the heart muscle, myocardial infarction, or heart attack. And finally, after several of these heart attacks or complications thereof, one may have heart failure ensue. And what are the treatments for coronary artery disease? Well, there's a constellation of treatments available today, Mark. The American Heart Association has recommended a medical management scheme consisting of aspirin to prevent thrombosis and platelet aggregation, beta blockade, use of drugs which reduce the oxygen consumption of the heart muscle, and a statin, which is a series of drugs which reduce the cholesterol level in the bloodstream. Other factors to control include blood pressure and other symptoms or signs of heart failure. However, the exciting treatments for all heart diseases today are the catheter-based interventions and surgical procedures. These operations and catheter-based therapies have really become very popular and have, in fact, reduced the mortality over the life expectancy of a patient with coronary artery disease to a great degree. The newer catheter-based therapies deliver drug-eluting stents, little cylindrical metal objects, which after a narrowing has been dilated, will more or less permanently maintain an adequate lumen in face of the coronary artery disease. This is a therapy that's recommended for very proximal narrowings in the coronary arteries in one or two vessels. However, when the disease becomes more prevalent in many of the vessels, surgery is probably the better therapy for it has a more long-lasting therapeutic effect. And what can we expect for life expectancy? Well, Mark, I think today we can say that we are rapidly achieving our ultimate goal, and that is for a normal life expectancy for most patients in the face of a disease which we are not yet able to cure. What is the functional significance of aortic valvular disease? Well, Mark, as you know, the aortic valve is the last in a line of four valves which maintain a normal antegrade flow through the four chambers of the heart and into the aorta. The aortic valve, therefore, is critical in delivering blood flow to all of the vital organs, including the heart. And when it doesn't function properly, the other organs also don't function properly. And what are the common causes of aortic valvular disease? Well, there's been a change in that regard, Mark, over the last, let's say, 20 years or so. Rheumatic heart disease back in the 50s was the most common cause of all valvular heart disease. It's really only a minor cause of valvular disease today, but we still see it occasionally. However, the most common etiologic factors that we see in aortic valve disease today are, surprisingly, arteriosclerosis, which produces narrowing of the aortic valve, much like it does when it attacks the coronary arteries. There are also a large number of people who have congenital aortic valves, perhaps only two cusps rather than three. One of the more common causes of aortic stenosis today is a congenital bicuspid aortic valve. 
This is associated frequently with an abnormality of the aorta as well and is one which we are very careful to diagnose and treat early. Aortic insufficiency, on the other hand, is caused by a connective tissue disorder, a weakness in the fibrous connective tissue of the valve itself and the aorta itself as well, and this often is associated with a life-threatening complication called aortic dissection. And how do these patients with aortic valve disease present? Well, Mark, aortic stenosis is one of the more commonly known diseases, which is life-threatening early after onset of symptoms. And the three symptom complexes of aortic stenosis include angina pectoris, which can be confused with coronary artery disease, syncope, which is an event which has, as you know, a differential diagnosis, which is quite lengthy, and finally, congestive heart failure, which is a manifestation of the left ventricle's response to the aortic valve disease. And how do we treat these patients? Well, Mark, surgery is really the only viable treatment today for aortic valve diseases. We have, over the past 10 years, evolved surgical therapies which have greater durability, better prognosis, and are much more acceptable with respect to surgical risk. What about the different choices of valves? Well, that's an excellent question, Mark, because as you know, the surgical therapy in aortic valve disease really is almost exclusively centered around replacement of the valve. Now, there are two generic types of valve prosthesis. Mechanical valves, which are made mostly of metal components with an associated sewing ring, usually of a Dacron material or something of that nature. The other type of family of prostheses are tissue valves, and there are several varieties of these tissue valves. It is important in discussing the selection of the prosthesis with the patient to understand what the advantages and disadvantages of each of these valves is. The metal valve is a very durable prosthesis and will last forever, essentially. However, it requires the use of an anticoagulant, usually warfarin, commonly called Coumadin by trade name, and this must be administered in order to maintain a international normalization ratio of 2 to 3 in all patients with mechanical prosthetic valves for their entire lifetime. The tissue valves were originally developed in order to avoid the anticoagulation, for there are many people for whom anticoagulation is either not recommended or dangerous. Young women who may become pregnant, for instance, cannot take warfarin because it's a teratogenic drug. Older people who may be at risk for spontaneous hemorrhage or for easy trauma or for difficulty in compliance with taking medications really have a very difficult time with warfarin anticoagulation. Therefore, the tissue valve is a very good choice for these patients. However, it must be remembered that the tissue valves do not have the durability of the mechanical valves. The tissue valve that we use today, which is a pericardial prosthesis manufactured from bovine pericardium, has approximately a 20-year life expectancy. Well, considering the risk of sudden death with aortic stenosis, I would take it that early therapy is very important. Well, that's right, Mark, and I think that the availability of superior prosthetic valves and the lower risk 
of surgery for a simple aortic valve replacement alone, somewhere in the vicinity of 2%, making it quite an acceptable surgical intervention, has encouraged primary care physicians and cardiologists to refer patients for treatment earlier in the disease history. This, of course, results in a better long-term prognosis because it avoids the irreversible damage to the left ventricle, which is at first hypertrophy and then dilatation and failure, sometimes irreversible if the valve is not treated early enough. I am Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, your host, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM233, the channel for today's medical professional. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Phil Faraci, Medical Director of the Condell Heart Center and Chief Cardiac Surgeon, and we have been discussing aortic valvular disease. Thank you for joining us.